my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Financial Heresy. On this podcast, we talk about how money works so that you can make more, keep more, and give more. Um, I say that phrase a lot. Um, recap of why. I think this is very important. Um, number one, we have to understand how money works uh, because it's like driving. It's like when you're learning how to drive a stick shift car for the first time. Uh, my experience, uh, I had more multiple people try and teach me and uh, you know they would say hey let off the clutch really slowly while you press the gas uh, 
And then, uh, you know, when it gets to uh, a point where, you know, the the RPMs are too high or you hear, you know, you hear it sound like this, then you're going to have to press the clutch in again. You're going to have to shift down to two. And the whole time I'm just thinking like, okay, well, this is a number one. It's a a lot of steps to memorize uh, just rote memorization, number one. And then number two, it doesn't make sense why that would make the car go the way it's supposed to go. And so every single person that I was asking them to teach me how to drive stick shift. I was asking them, well, what does this actually do? Like what, what is happening inside the engine when I'm pressing the clutch, when I'm letting off it slowly and when I'm shifting from one gear to another, like what, what is actually happening in there? Because if I can understand what's actually happening in there, then I'll be able to, I'll I'll be able to develop a feeling for what I know is happening and be able to be able to get better at it. And then I'll know, okay, well, obviously I stalled out there because, you know, of, you know, X, Y, or Z, how it happened. And nobody could explain it to me until, you know, I, I was, you know, probably four or five people in and then somebody finally explained it to me and boom, suddenly I was able to, I, I learned how to drive stick very quickly once I was, somebody explained to me how it actually worked. And investing and getting ahead with money, it's very similar to that because otherwise you're going to be going along. Uh, you, you don't have those automatic feedbacks with the game of money um, that you do driving stick. It's not like, hey, you make one small bad decision with your money and then suddenly your entire financial life grinds to a halt. With money, it's different. You have to make lots of repeated mistakes for a long period of time before it builds up with enough, uh, uh, you know, feedback, negative feedback to then, you know, try and give you a lesson about, Hey, that is not working. And because the distance between the action and the feedback is so removed, many people don't recognize that the feedback is actually telling them, Hey, you are making incorrect actions and decisions with your money. And so it's vital to understand how money works Uh, because then you actually know what the rules of the game are. And so uh, when we, that's how you make more money. That's how you know what to invest in. That's how you know uh, what to use debt for and what not to use debt for, when to use debt and when not to use debt, what kind of debt to use, what kind of debt not to use, what kind of assets uh, are good or bad during different periods of time during inflation or deflation, what causes inflation and deflation. So you can be on the lookout for signals that that's coming or, or, uh, or going. So all these things are extremely important in an era that we live in where everything is controlled from the top. Down. Uh, we don't live in a world like our great grandparents did, where you can just keep your head down, work hard, save a little bit, and that'll be enough to uh, you know retire on and get your gold watch. That just isn't the reality of the world we live in today. We live in a much more top-down, controlled economy where decision makers who are unelected have the ability to impose their will on an entire system and can make or break industries or companies as a result. So it's important to know how these things work so that we can navigate through these uh, these changes successfully. Um, making more money is a huge part of this because if you if you don't make more money, number one, you're not going to keep up with inflation. So you're never going to be able to get ahead. You're never going to be able to 
achieve your financial goals, your financial dreams, get to where you want to go uh, if you don't continue to increase your income. As you increase your income, though, it's important to not just throw it away and lose it as fast as you make it. And that's why I emphasize keeping more of your money, because if you spend it as fast as you make it, you're not actually getting ahead. So you've got to keep more of it so that you can do the right things with it, make investments when those opportunities come along. Um, And then ultimately, the reason we do this is to uh, is to be a force of good in the world and to take care of those who can't take care of themselves, take care of the least of these, the, 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 the poor people, the homeless people, the people who need our help, the people that we're entrusted to take care of our families, our friends, people who, uh, you know, we, we take up this responsibility, uh, to care for those around us, uh, because we can. Um, and so, it's a burden, but it is a, uh, a joyful responsibility that we have to, uh, to make more so that we can be givers uh, to society uh, and those around us. Uh, in, uh, in light of that, uh, today we're going to be looking at the best investments for 2023 uh, because this environment that we're in for this year is different than the environment that we were in for you know 2020 and 2021. 2022 is kind of a transition year where we transitioned from easy monetary policy to tight monetary policy and everything was kind of adjusting to that transition of like, hey, are we actually going to believe the Federal Reserve that they're going to get tighter and then transitioning from that growth environment to a uh, uh, to (laughs) the opposite of a growth environment. So um, we have uh, we have 2023 in front of us now um, and a few years of track record of monetary policy. We've got a few years ahead of us in terms of, uh, you know, a lack of political change for the next uh, couple of of years. And so uh, we can look forward at 2023 and say, hey, look, we have uh, a high degree of certainty in uh, kind of what it looks like the market will do and how to be able to navigate through this, uh, given what, what, what we know about how money works. So we're going to look at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine, nine different, uh, 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 you know, different uh, classes here, points that we're going to look at for uh, the best investments for 2023. And this is not advice. I could be completely wrong about this. Something could change tomorrow. Um, You know, let's say nuclear war breaks out, monetary policy changes overnight and everything collapses and falls off a cliff. Obviously, uh, you know, things can change in the blink of an eye here. Um, and so, uh, this is at this moment, uh, as of, um, as of, uh, the time I'm recording this Tuesday, January 10th, what it looks like, what I'm going to be looking at, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, outsized performance this year. Number one is gold. Now, anybody who's, you know, I've got a YouTube channel I've been doing for about three years now, a little over three years. And, um, I've, I've been very bullish on gold for a long time. Uh, and so if any of you have been following, uh, the content that I've been making for a while, you'll probably scoff at the fact that I'm bullish on gold because, well, let's be honest. I've been bullish on gold this entire time. Now I was right, uh, during the uh, period going into, uh, 2022, because, um, when I started talking about gold, it was starting to have, uh, you know, it had, it had just broken out of its, uh, accumulation period, uh, from the years of, uh, 2013 through 2019 in June of 2019. Um, and in fact, I probably started making YouTube videos right around that time, actually, now that I think about it, um, 
not many, but there are some out there. Um, that's when it broke out of that accumulation period. It had like, you know, it had a hard time getting above that $1,350 price point. And um, it, it started going, it started going at that point. So from a technical perspective, from the moment that I started talking about gold, from a technical perspective, meaning just its price action, it was primed to do well. And then obviously six months later, when 2020 came around, um, we had a lot of fundamental factors that contributed to uh, gold going up, the main one being a bunch of money printing. And so gold as a monetary metal, central banks stockpile uh, stockpile gold, and they've got the most money in the world because they have a monopoly on printing the money. So they are the big money. Um, and uh, they, they started buying up gold and investors who know what they're doing realize gold is a monetary metal. And so when a bunch of money is printed by central banks, they know that eventually that will cause inflation. And so what you do is you buy gold. Now, that means that the gold goes up before the inflation ever gets there. So when you look at, you know, gold's performance during the year of 2020, it went from, you know, $1,500 to a peak of uh, $2,000 in August. Um, So it had a huge run up. Um, And so but there was no inflation during that time. The money printing had happened, but the inflation hadn't hit yet. Um, And and so subsequent to that, well, it had to kind of adjust because now we know, okay, the money printing has happened. We know how much money printing approximately there will be. And now the fear is, okay, when all this inflation stuff is done, the Fed's going to start tightening. And so gold started moving really sideways when you look at it long-term from, um, you know, halfway through 2020 to the end of uh, 2022, uh, really moved sideways during that time. It fluctuated in between about 1,700 and about 1,900 dollars. Went up and down during through that range, um, and so gold has just been moving sideways in this kind of accumulation zone, uh, wondering, okay, well, when will the Fed start to tighten? And then once they do start to tighten, when will they start to ease again? Uh, now we're in that period of time where the Fed is starting to signal, hey, we're coming up on the end of our tightening. We're going to finish raising rates at some point. Um, we're not going to keep, you know, they're not going to keep on raising rates by, you know, three quarters of a basis point. They're not going to raise rates by 1%. They're seeing the inflation numbers come down. And so because of that, recently over the last um, two months, gold has responded very bullish, uh, bullishly to that. It's gone from, you know, 1640 up to uh, 1870. Um, and so uh, gold investors who are big money and central banks are starting to look at this and say, OK, well, when is gold going to front run the next uh, big bout of money printing? So monetary policy is one reason why I'm bullish on uh, on gold right now. Uh, but uh, that's not all. Another reason I'm bullish on gold is because of the deglobalization that's going on uh, politically around the world, how we see a decline in the interest of using the dollar as a global reserve currency. Um of using U.S. treasuries as uh, as basically cash reserves around the world. We're seeing central banks start to sell U.S. treasuries like the Bank of Japan is having to sell treasuries so that they can get uh, so they can get what they need in order to defend the yen and maintain their yield curve control. And so. We're seeing a lack of interest in the dollar in U.S. treasuries around the world. Um, Gold is the only monetary asset that is not 
um, uh, you know, it's the only asset that's not at the same time somebody else's liability. And so uh, if you have dollars, like Russia has dollars, well, suddenly now they don't have dollars anymore. Because if you can't use them, it's just like you don't have them. So because of the sanctions, if another country can control your spending power, they have a lot of control over you. So nations are starting to look at this and say, hey, we uh, don't like that. So if push comes to shove and we need to spend money, the only way we can guarantee that is if we hold gold. And so Many of you may not know this, but 2022, uh, central banks bought more gold than they have since 1967. 1967, central banks started to see the writing on the wall. There was not, uh, there were too many, there's too many dollars floating around. They thought there's probably not enough gold to back this up. And so this peg, the dollar to gold peg, they thought, hey, this is probably going to break. And so that means gold is going to become worth a lot more. Dollar is going to become worth a lot less. So I'm going to get rid of my dollars, start accumulating gold. They started doing that in 1967. And just four years later, the gold window had to close and the gold standard around the world was broken. And so central banks are stockpiling more gold than they have right now since 1967. So central banks believe that uh, there's uh, a good reason to own gold. Um, And so don't do what they say, which is use their cash. Um, Do what they do, which is buy gold. Um, So that's uh, those are a few reasons why I'm very bullish on gold going into this year. We've had a few years of accumulation at this uh, price range. Technically speaking, um, we've had uh, we have uh, easy monetary policy at some point in the future to look forward to now that tightening is winding down and uh, central banks around the world are starting to uh, really stockpile it right now. The second asset class that I'm looking forward to this year is silver. Um, Silver is, uh, you know, it's not as much of a monetary metal as gold. This is something that many silver investors get wrong. A lot of silver investors think uh, that silver, due to suppression and due to market manipulation, uh, is, you know, many, many, many times lower than it should be that we're going to see, you know, 100x, 200x returns in silver, um, that gold is going to go up. And that means that silver is going to go up by at least 10 times more. Um, The reality is that silver has as as a monetary metal has been losing value for um, for centuries, not just for not a short amount of time. Back in the day, you know, the first couple of episodes of this podcast, I explained how uh, kind of the history of money. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't, because that'll go into detail what I'm going to explain here more. But you have deflation naturally whenever you have a fix. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey, fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. 
And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Money supply. When gold was money, it was a relatively fixed supply. Yeah, you can dig it out of the ground, but it takes a long time. It's very hard. So on average throughout history, gold increases in its supply by about 1.5% per year, never has exceeded 2% per year. And so uh, the gold supply really is pretty stable. Um, not exactly fixed, but close, close enough. Uh, because of that, you get deflation, meaning the wealth increase outpaces the money supply increase. So yes, there's more money floating around from digging out gold, but there's way more wealth. There's more houses, there's more food, there's more clothing that's cheaper. There's way more better things, better ways to do things. You have, you know, the invention of the steam engine and all these revolutions that have happened that launch humanity forward in terms of wealth and progress and technology makes things cheaper. And so that means that a piece of gold where maybe it used to uh, buy you, um, you know, lunch after a few thousand years, a piece of gold can buy you a house. Maybe not that extreme, but you get what I'm saying, that things get cheaper. So those same pieces of gold become worth more and more and more. So because of that, you had to have change uh, come in. You had to have, uh, and I mean, literally change. Like today we use, you know, quarters and nickels and dimes. Um, So that's what silver was for. It was there to be changed for gold because you couldn't just, you know, cut your gold piece in half. I mean, you could, but nobody wanted to do that. And so you needed a smaller denomination. You'd use silver. Well, when fiat kind of uh, gained steam a few hundred years ago and banking and uh, fractional reserve banking and central banking took over. People started using paper certificates. Well, you have less of a need uh, for a metal to uh, serve the role of change because you can have smaller denominations um, of, uh, of bills just with paper. Um, And that, that 
then and makes uh, makes uh, inflation come into uh, come into being. So when you have fractional reserve banking, you have central banking established. You enter into an era of long term inflation where the money supply grows quicker than the, uh, uh, the the amount of wealth in the system. So now instead of that money becoming worth more and more, that money becomes worth less and less. And so the silver wasn't as useful as change uh, anymore as it used to be, um, because people got used to using the, uh, the denomination of coin got used to using the paper currency. And so you'd swap out the metal in a coin from silver to another metal and just declare, Hey, this is the same coin. People would still use it. So you get that inflation as a policymaker and, uh, the monetary role of a metal like silver goes down. Now, um, one other thing that recently has increased or decreased the monetary value of silver is uh, its industrial use. And so uh, more and more over the last few decades, silver is becoming more and more useful as a uh, monetary uh, or I'm sorry, an industrial metal. So it's being used in solar panels. It's being used in medical devices, being used in electronics. And so uh, it is less and less of a monetary metal and more and more of its value is determined by its industrial usefulness. And so uh, that that has that that means that when we look at some of these macro forces that will uh, affect gold going up, um, I believe in the very near, near future, um, that won't have as big of an impact on silver. Now, there will be some impact. I'm not saying there's no monetary value there um, because there's still a lot of value there because of the industrial usefulness for it and uh, because of the supply demand mismatch and, you know, many factors and people are going to buy it as an investment because, uh, you know, because they know other people will. And so there will still be a, um, a response there. I don't think it will be as uh, as leveraged as compared to gold as many people think. Um, I think we probably percentage wise, you probably will see a better performance out of silver um, as gold because typically that happens. But that relationship has shifted over the last few hundred years. That's important to know that you're not going to get massively wealthy by stacking a bunch of silver. It's an important way to diversify, have some extra assets. It's an important way to be able to stack metal because it's cheaper per ounce. So you can buy, you know, little smaller amounts of it at a time. So it's an easier your way to get into precious metal investing. And I think it's still going to perform very well, but just uh, keep, keep that in check. If you start uh, getting on the, on the precious metal forums and, and some of the channels talking about it, um, there's a lot of um, euphoria um, in terms of the belief on how good the performance in silver is going to be. And I don't think it's going to be uh, that extreme. Um, all right. Number three, value stocks. Um, so this is something that uh, has been a shift over the last year. We made a big shift from growth to value, and that's not going away anytime soon. Uh Growth just got slaughtered last year and value is the new uh, racehorse in front of the pack leading the way. So value investing is going to be something that uh, will uh, become increase. My, my prediction here is over the next two to three years will become increasingly popular. And by the time it becomes uh, kind of accepted general wisdom, like over the last many years, the generally accepted wisdom has been, hey, growth beats everything. So just invest in growth because that's going to it's going to be everything else out. 
we've shifted now. We're, we're heavily in the value camp. Um, by the time everybody starts saying, Hey, value is where it's at values where everybody needs to be. That's probably a sign that we're near the end of that. And we're nowhere near that, but value has had extremely good performance recently. That's only going to continue in my opinion. So I'm very in on value right now. If you, if you, if you don't know, um, how to pick value stocks, there are a couple things you can do. Number one, you can just pick a value fund. So a mutual fund or an ETF, uh, any broker in your 401k probably as well. Um, there are going to be some in there that are called value funds. And basically this is just, you put your money into that fund and then the fund manager, whether it's active or passive, you know, chosen according to a list, that money will be invested into uh, value stocks. Those value stocks are chosen based off of just preset criteria of, uh, of, you know, searching for companies. And once they hit all the boxes, then they're added to the list and they're invested in. And so, um, that's an easy way to do it. You're not going to get the best performance that way, but, uh, um, that's, that's an easy way to get into value stocks. Um, I also have a bear market investing guide. I can link it. I'll link it in the show notes. If your podcast platform does not have uh, the ability to see show notes or to click directly on links, um, you can find, uh, you can find this through my website, heresyfinancial.com, um, and through the uh, links on my YouTube videos as well through YouTube. Um, and so you can, uh, this bear market investing guide, I designed it to give you the tools you need to be able to do value investing. And it's specifically for bear markets because that's when, uh, really that's like, the best way to time this is when everything has kind of crashed because that's when there's actually value. Um, that's when there's actually stocks that are, uh, that are on sale. And so, um, and so you can, you can get my bear market investing guide that kind of goes through, I've got tools in there, really easy to use calculators that you can plug in, um, uh, companies to determine whether, okay, is this a company that is actually on sale? And if so, what price, uh, or if not, what price should I buy it at for it to be on sale? Um, so really, uh, easy to understand breaking it down, uh, so that you can, uh, become a uh, value investor and buy stocks when they're on sale and figure out which stocks are going to be the best, uh, to buy during, uh, you know, bear markets. Um, but if that seems like too much work for you, which I understand is a lot of work for a lot of people, you can always just get do an ETF. Uh, the next one is going to be dividend stocks. This is number four, dividend stocks. Um, this is something that uh, um, in, a, in, a, in an interest rate environment that we're in right now, the growth environment that we're in right now with inflation, cash flowing stocks are going to be something that investors are going to really start piling into soon. And I'm not talking about the measly half a percent, one percent, one and a half percent dividends. There are stocks out there that pay significantly more than that. Um, and um, usually they're in you know some sort of uh, uh, financial business. Sometimes they're in real estate, although the performance out of those has not been <laughs> not been stellar recently. Uh, but dividend stocks are something that I look at as a staple of a portfolio because they give you some cash. They give you some income, some dry powder that you can use to uh, invest in other things. And so in any portfolio, I always like to have uh, have income in that portfolio, have cash flow, because if you don't, then you just have a bunch of uh, a bunch of paper assets. You're not actually receiving income. And so scaling this out if you you know go to you retire someday and you have a bunch of assets that don't cash flow at all even if you've got 
$10 million in assets that don't pay cash flow. That means you have to sell in order to, uh, to pay your bills. Like if you don't sell your assets, then you are uh, bankrupt. You're, 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 you're insolvent. You have no income. And so uh, dividend, that's what one of the reasons why I like dividend stocks as one asset in any portfolio because they provide you with some amount of income. Even if you're reinvesting them for now, um, that allows you to accumulate shares. So I really like dividend stocks. Um, you can go on any uh, any website, uh, stock website. You can look at, you if you've got a brokerage account somewhere, an IRA somewhere, just use one of their screeners to search for dividend stocks. Just be wary of stocks that pay too high of a dividend. Like, you know, some of them you'll find are like, hey, 20%, 30%. Those are most likely because, hey, their past dividend was and then the stock price crashed. They're not going to be able to keep that up. Basically, that means that the company is losing 20%, 30% of its total assets just to dividend payouts. That's not something that's sustainable. So you want to make sure that you're not getting suckered into something that is uh, way lower um, or is going to be adjusted lower or something that's unsustainable and the company is on a uh, path to bankruptcy. All right. Number five, uh, rental properties. This is something that will probably be um, the most uh, disagreed on asset class that is on this list, but rental properties um, for a couple of reasons. And I'm going to I'm going to go over like the bullish case for real estate in America and the bearish case for real estate in America um, and how either way rental properties are poised to be a great asset class. Maybe not in the short term, like six months, but um, uh, definitely when you look uh, longer term. So if we think that the stock, that the real estate market is going to collapse, what what kind of real estate collapse are we going to be looking at? We're going to be looking at people who bought houses in the last two years, because so many people bought houses and they were very expensive. And now they look and cause they want to sell for whatever reason and they can't sell. Um, maybe they're looking because they have to sell, they have to move. They can't afford the mortgage anymore cause they lost their job. They got a pay cut. So we get a f- bunch of force. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. 
It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts sellers. Um, You're not going to have many um, uh, chosen sellers because if somebody sells right now, they're going to be moving somewhere where they're going to be paying more because if they move into the same exact house with a new mortgage, they're going to be paying, you know, twice as much as they're paying right now if they bought during, you know, 2021. Um, If they uh, go and rent, they're also most likely going to be paying more to rent. Um, And so you're not going to have many people choosing to sell just for no reason because they're likely going to, you know, drastically increase their, uh, their costs. Um, so what we are looking at is a bunch of forced sellers. And so there are some people out there and I'll, I'm going to bring on my uh, friend next week to talk about, um, uh, uh, talk about the bearish case for real estate. Um, there's a case to be made for it. I personally don't think it's a strong case, but there is a case. Um, if that happens, where are all these people going to go? It's not like they're going to be homeless. If we have a big real estate crash, a bunch of foreclosures, a bunch of sellers that are forced out, where do they go? They go and rent every single last one of them. Now, are they going to be renting the $600,000, $700,000, $800,000 house renting at five, six, seven grand a month? Absolutely not. They couldn't afford their $4,000 mortgage. So when they go rent, they're moving into a worse neighborhood. And they're going to pay $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month, $1,500 a month. So if we do look, if we do see a real estate crash ahead of us, that means uh, lower, uh, lower price, bad, you know, not, not the A class neighborhoods, but the maybe B, but most likely the C class neighborhoods. These are going to be rented out. They're going to continue to be rented out. 
Now, I don't mean everywhere across the U.S. You have to. There's no such thing as the U.S. real estate market. As we've said before, uh, there are a bunch of real estate markets across the U.S. And so there are going to be places that are not going to have that uh, they are not going to have renters, even though they have a real estate crash. Absolutely. Um, so this is all location specific. Uh, but by and large, the cheaper houses are going to stay rented. You're still going to have renters in there because when everybody gets forced out of their homes, they don't become homeless. They go and rent somewhere cheaper. Um, and so if we do have a real estate crash, rental properties are where it's at. Number two, what if we don't have a real estate crash? What if I'm right? And uh, we have this lull here. Um, and by the time a you know forced selling wave would happen, we start to see interest rates move back down a little bit. We start to see activity pick up a little bit. Nobody sells because they're not losing their jobs at the mass pace that would require forced selling. So everybody stays in their homes and eventually little bit of uh, price increases follow in uh, in homes. And then at some point in the future, there's another financial crisis and rates drop and then the whole thing explodes again and prices just go through the roof. In that case, you still want to have exposure to the real estate market. You still want to own a bunch of rental properties because as always, the rental properties are going to stay rented. There's always going to be people that will need a place to live because they can't afford to buy. So they have to rent. That's always going to exist because we have laws in this country that prevent enough supply of homes from being built compared to the number of people who want a place to live for over a decade now, we've had way fewer homes being built than, than, uh, than our population needs to support. And so we're always going to have people who need a place to rent, especially if prices skyrocket, because if we get interest rates lowered again from an economic crisis, prices start to explode. How many people are going to be able to afford a home? If people can't afford to buy now a $700,000 house with a $4,000 mortgage, they're definitely not going to be able to afford that same house at a million dollars with a $6,000 mortgage at $2 million with a $15,000 mortgage. There's absolutely no way. So the more you have price house uh, prices of homes going through the roof, the more renters you're going to have permanently because we're going to have an entire class of people locked out from buying permanently. So they're going to be renting. So rental properties, again, are where you're going to want to be at. So whether we crash, whether we skyrocket, you're going to want some rental properties, even if it's, even if it's just a few, just to have your foot in the door, just to have, have yourself in the game. Um, that's an opinion, not a recommendation, not advice. Because um, again, I could be completely wrong about this, but that's the way I'm playing it. That's the way I see it right now. Number six, energy stocks. Um, so energy stocks, I think, are poised to do extremely well. We have in major energy classes like we, in natural gas, in oil, in um, uh, in, in in uranium. We have uh, a huge mismatch between future demand and future supply. Um, and the market is starting to wake up to this. So many energy stocks have started to perform extremely well over the last six months or so. Um, now, obviously, deglobalization, political instability, like Russia, everything like that has a huge th- that has a huge impact on it as well. China reopening, huge impact on this. And so, uh, energy stocks uh, by everything happening right now 
our uh, setup for a big bull run, but we also have extreme imbalances in the amount of reserves, in the amount of production, uh, in things like oil. Uh, in order to provide for future needs. When you look at something like uranium, it's like most uranium comes from Russia or the regions around Russia. Like they control a ton of uranium production. And the world right now is shifting very quickly to be pro-nuclear. If you are, if you're against nuclear energy, you're, you most likely got your education about nuclear energy from the Simpsons. Um, it's the cleanest, in terms of like carbon, there's no CO2 emissions from nuclear. It's the uh, uh, most energy dense, meaning you need about a one square mile um, to uh, have have a, a nuclear power plant. That same amount of electricity production from solar panels, you would need thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of solar panels, which destroys local environments. You need, again, the same size for wind uh, wind farms which it, it destroys, you know, it kills bird populations and it's just, they're terrible for the local environments. They only last like 10 to 20 years before these wind uh, uh, blades, the wind turbine blades uh, have to get replaced and then they can't be recycled. They're just buried in the ground. Same thing with the solar panels before they have to be replaced. Then they just leach all these toxic metals into the landfills. Whereas nuclear, they last for, you know, 60, 70, 80, hundred years plus regulations are the reason why they're shutting them down. Not because they're, needing to be shut down. Um, and, uh, and so they're much more energy dense, uh, a, a coffee cup, you fill up a coffee cup with uranium. That's enough uranium to produce more electricity than you will ever use in your entire life. And so there's no waste problem. We solved the waste problem decades ago. We have it encased in earthquake proof casks that is proven they're way stronger than earthquakes. And then they go below the water table when they're drilled in, uh, into the ground. There's no possible for uh, leakage into any water supply or anything like that. It's not like goo. It's like hard materials like glass and metal uh, that are encased in these massive, uh, you know, concrete uh, blocks. And so if, if you uh, do a little bit of research because the public opinion is waking up to this because more and more scientists have been talking about this and they're realizing, Hey, if we want any shot of like going green, having enough energy needs for the future, like competing in a global world, nuclear is our best shot at this. And so people are waking up and there's going to be a big shift and America doesn't produce any uranium. That's a fact. So most, most uranium comes from places where we don't want to get that uranium from anymore. And so having exposure to uh, uranium st uh, stocks that are, uh, that have uh, Western based uh, properties um, could probably be, uh, could probably be a big winner over the next decade. Commodity miners is number seven commodity miners. So I talked about gold and silver, the bullish case for that, which means that uh, the companies that produce more of it are going to have, uh, uh, you know, outsized profits because it's kind of like a leveraged, uh, leveraged bet. They've got a ton of gold or a ton of silver or other, other commodities as well, like copper. So they've got a ton of it in the ground. And so when, uh, when the commodity goes up, you know, like 10%, um, that means that the company uh, just massively increases its profits because if they're making, you know, if it costs them, let's say $1,000 to get gold out of the ground, they can sell it at $1,800. They have an $800 profit. So if gold goes up to, let's say $2,500, they're still getting it out of the ground for $1,000. So, but now instead of selling it for $1,800, they're selling it for $2,500 or let's say $2,600. That's a 100% increase in their profits. 
but the gold didn't have to go up by 100% to get that 100% increase in profits. And so uh, you have kind of a leveraged uh, um, uh, returns on miners. Now, this isn't to replace physical metal. Physical metal is like a good hedge against inflation, a good hedge against, you know, you know, you can take that wealth with you. You can travel with it. You can send it like you have got purchasing power. You could barter with it in a grid down situation. Like it's, it's a good thing to have physical metal in your possession. And miners are not a replacement for that. Miners are stocks. And so they should be treated as such. They're businesses. So you got to make sure that you're investing in an actual good business with a good resource that's managed by a good team with a good proven track record that knows how to get it out of the ground. And it's not just selling a pipe dream just to get investors money. And so you want to make sure that they're actually going to do what they say they're going to do, which is eventually bring that mine to production and start selling that gold. Um, same thing with other uh, with other commodities. Uh, but as as this whole situation that our world is in continues, more and more money will start flooding into commodity miners because there's not that many of them left uh, after the big 2011 bubble and crash. Lots of investor money went away from commodities, from miners, and a lot of companies went out of business. So there's only a few left. And when a tide turns, it's like fire hose going through the eye of a needle. So uh, there's going to be, you know, kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats situation probably going on pretty soon. Number eight is Bitcoin. This might be the other controversial asset that I have on this list. Bitcoin um, has obviously been through a big decline. Uh, it is currently, as of the time of this recording, trading at $17,437. That is down from its peak at about $69,000. Uh, so it's down about 75% from its peak. In terms of bear markets for Bitcoin, that's pretty average. When you look at its declines from top to bottom, that's right in there with uh, where you would expect it to uh, fall, uh, given its historical pattern. And so this, in my opinion, is a good place to start accumulating pretty aggressively, uh, not going all in, but it's like, well, how much farther will it fall from here? It could keep it could go to zero. Uh, so I'm not saying that. Um, but when you look at how far it has fallen in the past from a top to a bottom move, it's like, yeah, 75%. If you would have in the past bear markets started buying again uh, after a 75% decline, you would have uh, you would have been buying at a pretty, pretty attractive price considering the next bull market, which usually takes it up much, much further than the peak of its last uh, bull market. So I'm pretty bullish. I, I like buying Bitcoin at this price. Could it go down further? Absolutely. But to me right now, the risk to reward ratio, which to be fair, has been I've been saying the same thing. I've never said uh, to sell Bitcoin um, since I uh, in about let's see, when was it? It was April. It was either April or October of 2020. I can't remember. It was sometime in 2020. At the latest, it was October of 2020 when I uh, started buying Bitcoin, uh, when I changed my mind about it. That's when I learned, really decided to study it, learn about it, when I discovered it. And um, the more I learned about it, the more I realized, wow, this is a big deal. This is this is good stuff. And so I started buying it then. Um, and so since then, I've never said, hey, I think it's going to go down from here. So obviously, I was wrong about that uh, when I was saying you know, that I was bullish on it when it was at 60. 65, 69,000. Um, 
but uh, but the fundamentals haven't changed. The price has changed. The fundamentals haven't changed. Nothing has changed about it. It is a uh, sensor resistant form of money. It's like gold in terms of its properties of hardness, um, resistance to censorship, resistance to theft in terms of its like uh, properties. Like if it gets like if you accidentally give it to somebody and they have it now, like you can't go get it back. Same thing with cash. If you accidentally give somebody cash and they run away, it's like you can't go get that back. You can't just call up your bank and say, hey, give me that cash back. And so there are some like, you know, properties to it that make it uh, perform very similarly to a hard physical currency. Uh, The difference is it's digital. So you can pay across large distances of uh, space which is what we need for the future. You need something that is hard. So you preserve your purchasing power over large periods of time, like gold, something that can't be inflated away. But you also need something that is digital that can you know, transact immediately over any space so that uh, you can have it serve as base money for uh, for an economy. Um, now, I don't know whether people will adopt it as money, but if they do, we'll have a very strong economy on top of it. Um, and if they do, the price will have to be much higher than it is today in order to support the market cap of pricing everything in the entire global economy. So that would be like, you know, at least a million dollars per Bitcoin for, uh, for that to be the case. So the risk to reward ratio for me is worth it because I think if Bitcoin does become money, well, number one, it will have to go up in price a lot. Number two, it will be a very good world. Like we will want to live in a world where Bitcoin is money. Um, I don't think that's inevitable. I don't think that's definitely an assurance that that's going to happen. But if it does, it will be very good. So I like buying Bitcoin. Number nine, last one on the list, learn how to hedge and speculate. So obviously I teach how to do this as well. This is my other course about portfolio allocation. I've got a whole section there on hedging and using options to uh, hedge your portfolio and speculate. But basically this is something that is extremely important uh, in volatile times that you know how to hedge your downside risk. Because if you invest in an asset and then it goes down by 50%, well, how much do you need just to get back to even? You don't need 50%. If you go 50% down and then 50% up, you're still down 25% from where you started. So when you go down 50%, you need a 100% gain just to get back to even. And you know how rare 100% gains are. <laughs> that's that's pretty rare. And so when we look at um, when we look at investing, the number one rule of every single of the most successful investors and traders that history is don't lose money, protect your downside risk, manage risk, never expose yourself to a blow up, do not let yourself have a large drawdown. Every single one across the board of all the successful ones, that's their number one rule. They all have other ways. They all have different ways that they make money. But their number one rule, all of them is don't lose money. And so you can do this a number of ways, which is like, you know, you can manage risk by really studying and um, getting skilled at uh, fundamentals and being able to look at a company and say, hey, look, I know the fundamentals of this company. I know the management team and I know they're undervalued. And so I know that the market will eventually respond and the company is going to be worth it is worth at least let's say $100 a share. But right now, the market thinks it's only worth $50 a share. And so I've got, uh, you know, I, I've got an inside, you know, knowledge here. I know that uh, the market's wrong about this. So you can hedge your risk, you can get rid of risk by understanding the fundamentals of a company enough to be able to say, no, the market's wrong. I'm right. Um, that's pretty difficult, though, because the consensus has a lot of smart money out there that's all looking to make money. And they're all a lot of them are doing fundamental analysis, too. And so 
the um, the possibility that the market is the entire market is wrong and you're right is um, uh, is a lot worse as a beginner. The chances are a lot worse. Um, and so hedging through using something like options um, allows you to, uh, you know, kind of transfer some of the risk of your ignorance. Um, you know, to put it bluntly, that if you don't know for sure that you are right about this company, well, then hedge that ignorance away so that if it falls, it's like fire insurance that you don't have to pay for your ignorance. You don't have to pay for that mistake that you don't have to expose yourself to the loss there. So instead of exposing yourself to the risk of a large loss, you guarantee yourself a very small loss by buying that insurance, by hedging with options. And now you don't have to worry about a large drawdown. The other thing you can do with options is speculate safely. And so it's ironic here because when you use something that allows you to speculate, a lot of people think, well, that's too risky, but it allows you to then minimize the risk of taking risks. And so if you think there's a company that's going to do extremely well, but you're not sure, well, you don't want to put 5%, 10% of your portfolio into it, but maybe you want to take a half of 1% of your portfolio and use options to speculate on it so that if it does do very well, you still make, you know, for your overall portfolio performance of an increase of like, you know, one, two, 3%, but you didn't have to put in a ton of money in order to uh, get yourself that upside potential. And if you're wrong, well, then you only lose a very small amount. So it's important to learn, uh, I think, for most investors today, how to use options to hedge and speculate, just very basic stuff, uh, very basic um, options strategies, because most people, their investments uh, are composed of stocks. And so and even with real estate, like you can hedge your real estate portfolio by buying puts on real estate companies like REITs. And so there are uh, there there are ways that sophisticated investors protect themselves from lost and from loss, and one of those is using options. And so, number nine on my list is uh, options, so that you can learn how to speculate and hedge uh, your portfolio. And again, I teach this in my portfolio allocation class. I will link that in the show notes as well. You can also find that through my website. Thank you so much for listening to another episode, and we will see you guys next week. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.